0: Father, we thank you for the tremendous victory that Christ has won for himself and for you and for us. And Father, we just thank you for the plan that you have made, that you have been carrying out, that we benefit off of. And Lord, we pray that we may know more intimately your plan and who you are and who Jesus is, and that we may be. Just worthy um, followers of yours, ambassadors for you, and that, Lord, our knowledge of you may be spread to other people that we know. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, the book of Revelation tells us God's plan for reclaiming his creation, which started out so pristine and so beautiful and so bountiful, but then was seriously corrupted by sin, which then led to on a pathway of death and decay. Now, of course, we still have great beauty in our world, and we have aspects in our world that show that God is a magnificent, brilliant creator who gave us such wonderful things in our world, but still we can see that sin... And evil has taken a horrible toll on our universe, on the whole earthly scene. So Revelation, the book of Revelation, shows us God's plan for rescuing his creation, for taking it back from those who usurped his authority, for defeating sin and evil and Satan, and giving his people, eventually, a new heavens and a new earth. And this new creation that we are kind of moving toward, that God has planned for us, it will be totally free of sin, and it will last for all eternity. It says that over and over again in the Bible. And in this new creation, on this new earth, there will be a glorious holy city where the king reigns, and it will be the new Jerusalem, and it's going to come down out of heaven, but, you know, also, with that, that magnificent city that we're going to see, and I think we'll be making pilgrimages to it. That's my thought, <clears throat> you know, from all over the, world, the earth. Also, there will be aspects, in the, when you see this in the Bible, of the Garden of Eden on the new earth. And then probably everything in between. So people kind of had an idea, just from kind of a lack of knowledge or understanding, that uh, you know, some people think it's just going to be floating around, you know, and having 24-hour worship services. But it's going to be a new earth, with you know, God's going to give us, you know, uh, what He started from the beginning. Only this time, there's not going to be any sin, not going to be fall of man. And in our passage this morning, we're even going to see a gift-giving celebration. Maybe like our Christmas time, but on the other hand, nothing like our Christmas time gift giving. And it will be very short lived. But the Apostle John is receiving all these visions and information, you know, as he uh, is being visited by an angel. And he's receiving all this information and told to write down certain things. And he was given these things, he was to write to seven churches. And he's told to prophesy to peoples and nations and kings. And then in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, which is where we've made our way to, John is told to measure something. And so I want you to read with me the first two verses of chapter 11 and see what he's going to measure. It says, John is saying, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. You know... Revelation, of course, is a book about the end times and how things are going to wrap up. God's going to wrap up his plan, his program. Now, John is told to measure the temple of God. And right away, of course, we think of the Jewish temple. He's saying the altar and the place of worship, the worshipers, where they gather. But don't measure the outer court. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles, The Gentiles weren't allowed to go into the inner court unless they became uh, a proselyte Jew. But if if they can just come and worship on the outer part of the temple, but only those who were in a covenant with God, the chosen people, could go into the inner court. So you have God's chosen people in the inner court, and they have the Gentiles' court and the outer part, where, you know, they, and that was as far as they could go. But really what is happening here as we're looking at this, you know, we're in the New Testament times, and John is an apostle of the, in the New Testament. <clears throat> but God is using Old Testament language to distinguish between his true children and those who reject Christ. And he's using the, the temple language, the inner court and the outer court. But I want to show you what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that uses this kind of language. He says, don't you know that you yourselves, and of course he's talking to Christians, right, in the church. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So as Christians, as we form the church of God, and we are the temple of God, we are sacred to him. We have that covenant. We're in that covenant with him. We're tied to Jesus Christ's death on the cross because we've come to him for our forgiveness. So John is actually marking off when he says you know, the worshipers and the inner temple compared to the outer temple. He's marking off those who have come to Christ for forgiveness from those who are the enemies of God. And he's using temple language. And those he marks off as God's true children will be under a special kind of protection of his. He was told not to measure the outer court, signifying that these people were not under his same protection. And they were not a part of his covenant people. You know, it says that the outer court of the Gentiles, they'll be allowed to trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, unfortunately, from our perspective, that means the enemies of God are going to be allowed, you know, this is in the end times, the enemies of God are going to be allowed to attack and hurt and persecute the children of God for 42 months. Now it doesn't mean that God is initiating this or that he approves it. It means that there are evil people that are going to be against the church and God is going to allow them a certain time to persecute the church in a most horrible way. You know we know that the church is persecuted today and different parts of our our um, world and some horribly but in this time it's going to be a very intense harsh persecution right at the end of the age and that also means when that time is up you know he's given them a certain amount of time then they will pay dearly for the persecuting of his people It's all a part of God's plan to defeat sin and evil and take back his creation. Because we kind of think of God as being able to just like, poof, do this and do that. And, you know, he can. But he has a whole program laid out to defeat sin, evil, and get rid of it forever. Now, it says here, well, it said there, that they will... uh, trample the people of God for 42 months and you may wonder I thought since God measured the, inter, the inner temple and marked off his true children from those that don't turn to Christ they, that means that he will, he will receive or give them special protection from their enemies well they are receiving special protection from God But when you read through the the, the accounts of the scriptures, it usually often isn't special protection from their enemies, their earthly enemies. It's protection from when God starts judging, bringing judgment down upon the earth. God marks off his people for special protection. But it doesn't mean that we will never face persecution. Of course, we know that because we see many Christians facing persecution but it guarantees that if we die as a child of God if we pass over you know with our faith in Christ it guarantees that we will certainly be with him and death cannot separate a true believer from God persecution hardship loss mistreatment you know sometimes we think when that happens we think where's god He's not with me anymore. But the Bible assures us very strongly that none of that stuff will separate us from the love of God. If we have a relationship with God through faith in His Son, take on our sins, we come to Him for forgiveness, we are safe with God. No matter what happens to us, no matter how much we're beat up, no matter what you know, horrible thing that we might go through, if we are a true child of God, with our faith planted in Christ as our sin-bearer, we have the absolute guarantee of eternity with Christ. And I just want to read you here probably the, one of the most uh, best passages that talk about this in Romans chapter 8. And the Apostle Paul says, <clears throat> because Christians in the past have thought, Hey, am I I not in the covenant anymore? Because, you know, I'm I'm getting creamed by these persecutors. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, he's quoting scripture, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So when we go through persecution, we are conquerors. And we saw last week where those who died in the tribulation, they were waving palm branches and wearing championship robes because they were conquerors, even though they got killed. It kind of seems like they lost. No, they won because their faith was in Christ. God is talking to us. He's told us that we are going to go through hard times because of our faith in Him, for our faith in Christ. But as we do, and as things happen, we're never separated from the love of God as our faith is in Christ. But now I want to look at something very interesting about this time where the unbelievers are trampling for 42 months the holy city and and the believers in the holy city. It looks like they're not going to have completely free reign with their trampling. I want you to look at verses 3 through 6, back in Revelation chapter 3. This is what's going to happen during those 42 months. It says, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, that's the same amount of time, clothed in sackcloth." They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, I mean, just look at this. These are two prophets of God. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Quite a scene, isn't it? This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that, the, so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So God is going to appoint two prophets to stand against his enemies, these Gentiles, while they are trampling over Christians in the holy city, as they are running rough, roughshod over them. And these two prophets, <clears throat> these two witnesses, they're wearing sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning, you know, for the sins of the nation and for the judgment. Their actions of breathing fire and shutting up the heavens, that reminds us, well, actually the things that they're, they're said, they said that they're going to do reminds us of Moses and Elijah because they talk about the plagues coming down whenever they want and the fire and then stopping the rain. Those are the things that we've seen with Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. And so many people think it will actually be Moses and Elijah sent back to the earth to do that, do God's work right at the end of the time. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. The lampstands, they are the the light of God and they are the work of the Holy Spirit. And the olive trees are the ones that feed the lampstands to keep them burning. So they will have God's power to keep them ministering even in those really rough times. And I can't imagine, you know, when these these. Prophets are going around, and they're causing all this trouble for these, these people who hate God. And they try to stop them, and wha, they get fried. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine that. That's That's like a, a movie you see today, isn't it? They're going to wreak havoc among the Gentiles as they try to trample the city for three and a half years, destroying people with fire. You can can imagine how desperate these enemies of God will be trying to get rid of these two prophets and they can't get close to them. So it may lead us to wonder why does God send these two powerful witnesses out in this time of intense persecution when God's people are being trampled? Why is God just sending two people out. Well, what it seems to show us is that even in this time of severe persecution that God is going to allow against his own people, he's still showing that he is the one who has the ultimate power. And these two prophets are standing against a much bigger, well-armed force, and yet they can't be stopped. For three and a half years they can't stop them and they're causing all kinds of trouble for them and they can't be stopped until God decides it's their time to stop. And you can think of Moses when he who was Moses to stand against the Pharaoh and the Egyptian army? but he did didn't he? I mean God rained down all those plagues upon them and, and Moses Basically, by himself, because he had no army, he, he overcame the pharaoh and freed the people. And Elijah, you know, with uh, King Ahaz and Jezebel, the wicked king and queen, and the prophets of Baal. He stood there all by himself and defeated them all. And so you can see what God is doing in that situation. Because God has the ultimate power. No matter what the odds are. Everyone will have to answer to God in the end. You know so many people get so. Anti God. And then so. So caught up in their own. You know. Their own press. And their own power. But every person will have to answer to God in the end. Now. Now. Look what happens when these two prophets complete the work that God has given them. It says, now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them. So we're getting somebody coming up from, <clears throat> from uh, like a, a demon-type character. And will overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom stands for the immorality, and Egypt stands for the slavery, where also their Lord was crucified. It's really Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts and making a holiday out of it because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now imagine how relieved these people these people that hate God were when these two prophets are finally taken out. You know, this beast comes up from the, from the abyss and takes them out. And so they're so happy they make a holiday out of it. And just think, they're, they're siding with this demonic creature coming out of the ground. But their hearts are so sold out to evil that any power that they can take to get rid of these two, they'll take it whatever gets them what they want. You know, it it seems in a society, as we've seen our modern societies, you know, in the West, you have people standing for questionable morals. And at first, they'll try to, like, explain them, like how they really are good, even though we know they're wrong, they're bad. They'll try to show how, well, they can help people or... It can encourage people, or, you know, they they try to make them look good. But as people go further and further away from God's ways and his values, at some point, they don't even try to mask what they're doing. And they just end up calling good evil and evil good. And they'll look at people that are doing wonderful, good things and call them evil. And they're doing horrible things, and they're calling it good. And those who stand for good become the enemy, and they are called evildoers. So these two troublemaking prophets, who clearly were working by the power of God, are now out of the way. And the enemies of God are gloating over this, celebrating by giving gifts to each other. And I imagine the retailers were pretty happy too. But their celebrations are brought to a screeching halt. Look at verses 11 through 13. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, the the witnesses, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. And that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So we have this major celebration, and then these prophets just stand up after three and a half days of being dead, it says the life of God enters them. And as they watch them stand up, of course, they're struck with terror. They've been celebrating these people's death for three and a half days. They've been giving gifts to each other. They've been probably doing everything, dancing in the streets, whatever. And then as they watch them walk or stand up, they hear a loud voice calling them up to heaven, up into the cloud. And they watched them rise. Pretty freaky, isn't it? I mean, the celebration is truly over now. And within the hour, the city experiences a severe earthquake. 7,000 people die. A tenth of the city collapses. God is reclaiming his creation. Step by step. Like I said, sometimes we think, God, just come in and do it. But he has a plan, and he has a plan for a reason, because he's doing so many more things with his plan as he takes things and turns them in a different way. He has he's planned out a certain way to do things by a certain time, and it will affect certain people. His enemies become more and more blatant in their hatred of him. They try every way to oppose his way. They celebrate even a beast from the abyss, rising from below, attacking, overpowering, killing the two prophets of God. And they make a holiday of it. That's how far these people have gone. And then they see God raise these prophets back to life. They hear the voice calling them up to heaven. They watch them rise into the sky And then within the hour, an earthquake levels the city, a tenth of the city. 7,000 people die. And it says here they gave glory to God. Now, that doesn't mean that they repented and became followers of God. What it really means is they are so completely in awe of what they've just watched and struck... And after that, seeing the, the earthquake happen, that they have to acknowledge, they, can't, they cannot get escape acknowledging that God is the one who made that happen. It means that they're so moved by all that they just saw, rising to new life, rising up to heaven, the earthquake happening, ascending into the clouds, they can't even bring themselves to deny it was an act of God. You know how people today... You see an act of God or you see how God works things out and people will deny it. They couldn't even deny it. They had to admit that this was a work of God. You know why? Because God knows the best way to carry out his plan. <clears throat> we would have never planned it that way. Uh... If we were the ones planning it, we would remove all the personal suffering, wouldn't we? I mean, the witnesses, they had to suffer. But, of course, God knows the best way to to work things out. If I was making the plan, I would not insert personal suffering. But God knows in His timing and in His way, for His purposes. And so, we follow God's way just by living according to His word. By living in ways that please Him. When He gives us principles to live by, but they're hard, we just have to submit and follow them. Because God knows the best way. And sometimes they seem so counterproductive to us. And so much against what we want to do. But we have to just do it because it's God's way. And His way is always best. We would have never thought of anything like this that we just read through. But God has special purposes in everything that he does. And it's way beyond what we could think of. That's why we have to trust. Now, I want to end this morning by reading about the seventh trumpet. We've been talking about the seals, bowls, trumpets and bowls. Those are the the judgments that are coming down. I want to read this morning by talking about uh, the seventh trumpet. It says, the second woe has passed, the third woe is coming. This is the judgments of God we're talking about. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. Now the ark <clears throat> of the covenant during all the Old Testament times. Was the presence of God as they traveled. And there came flashes of lightning. Rumblings. Peals of thunder. An earthquake. And a severe Hailstorm. So, what we have here is we have God showing us his plan on how he's going to end things. And this was just a little piece of it, of course. And like I said, he doesn't do it the way we would do it, <clears throat> but he does it the way that it has to be done. And he does it in a way that's going to expunge and get rid of sin and death and hurt and sorrow for for the rest of eternity. And we will live on this new earth where where God will reign and he'll be sitting on the throne and Christ will be sitting on the throne and we will serve him and he will give us things to do. And we'll be covering the earth and the, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. And it's going to be more amazing than we could even ever think. But it has to be you get there by faith. Because all the things that we would like to have on this earth and the way we would think of doing them is not the way we get to God by faith. So we just have to trust Him, and He's got something amazing waiting for us that we could never dream up. So it's just a matter of trusting in God following his ways, following his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation and how much it shows us. Hard to understand, hard to put together uh, so many symbols, but Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us so that we can have that hope that goes beyond suffering, that goes beyond hard times. Lord, we know that your love is there for us no matter what we have to go through. And even when it's, when it's hard, we know that you are there for us. Thank you for the message that comes through. Thank you for us being able to have your word. We pray for those in the world who, who aren't able to get your word, that, would, that the, the push to get it to them would continue. Lord, thank you for all that you do and how great you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.